Psalm 73, 1 through 3, 16, 21 through 28. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When my soul was embittered, when I pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, it's going to be a very interesting day for those of you that are Bronco fans. Um, I'm going to say a lot in a short amount of time, so try to, try to hang on. It's good to have you here. Um, today, if you've ever questioned whether I'm inclined towards the more difficult aspects of Christianity, today's going to act, absolutely remove all doubt. Uh, I think this is the best, this is the sermon that I'm probably more excited about than I have, have been in a long, long time. And the reason is, is that not only does it encapsulate what we've been trying to do throughout this series, um, the series is intended to kind of help each of you navigate what's going on out there. In our culture, we have two drastically, dramatically different positions in regard to what you do with your emotions, how you understand them, how you can kind of live with them. On one end, you have this idea that your emotions are everything, and you just need to learn how to self-express, and you're going to be in total solidarity with your, with your inner being, and everything's going to be cool. On the other end, you have some really significant voices in our culture that are coming from more of a stoic type of position that says, your emotions are just in the way. You just have to kind of learn how to stuff them and learn how to just trust your reason and get past that. But the interesting aspect and the beautiful part of the book of Psalms is it's a collection of expressions of, of those parts of our being. They're explaining every facet of our emotions. Some of them, some of us haven't even experienced some of what, uh, what the Psalms kind of push you through and force you to contemplate. And so Psalms is showing a very different reality than what you're faced with today in our culture. It's not an either-or. The book of Psalms is presenting a wholehearted way that we can live in intelligent awareness of all that's going on inside of us emotionally and how to best live in regard to those things, not in spite of those things. And so, very, very interesting series. Now, today as we issue, deal with this issue of doubting doubt, um, I, I, I want to ask you a question in the very beginning of this. That Because over the years, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, typically people hate seasons of doubt. I do. I have throughout my lifetime. I know that there were two very significant seasons of doubt for me that I knew unless I worked through it, I wasn't going to continue to be a Christian. At one point, it drove me to go to seminary because I, I couldn't get any questions. The questions that I had as I was reading through the Bible, the people I was around at the time, they, they deflected those questions, and, and that just poured gasoline on the fire that was going on inside of me. But even if you haven't gone through those dark seasons of doubt, You've heard other people refer to them like, oh, this is like being in the wilderness. I've, over the 25 years, I've counseled numerous people that have told me, either I get this figured out, I'm, I'm walking away. And I really respect that. 
And so in one sense, I think it's very natural for us just to say, doubt sucks. We just need to learn how to be strong enough and develop our prayer life and read our Bible enough. We need to develop enough Christian community, and we're not going to have any more doubts. That is going to cripple you because you will. It's not if you're going to have doubts. It's just a matter of when. So while I, being sincere or courageous about facing doubts in regard to what we believe, it never really is comfortable, but I hope to be able to convince you this morning it is necessary. It's actually very beneficial. And so coming back to my question, whether you look at doubt as a negative thing or a positive thing, in the end, I think that you're going to have to admit that it's something very, very positive. It's not pleasant, but it's positive. Now, this morning as we kind of press into this 73rd Psalm, I want you to know that throughout the history of Jesus' church, Psalm 73 has always been viewed as a remarkable, it's a, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air. And I, I think that there's a lot of different reasons for it. Um, when a person, by God's grace, comes to to believe in Jesus, when she begins to put her faith in the gospel and she says, I want to be a Christian. That is almost like a euphoric eruption by comparison to what's going to happen in a few weeks, months, or maybe even years. Um, because there's this, there's just like this needling inside of us that when we hold something by faith, it seems like something's always trying to tug it away from our hands. And for that reason, Psalm 73 has always been seen as kind of a breath of fresh air because you have one of the actual writers of Scripture, we're not sure exactly who it is, wrote about this. And so it dispels any sense of some pietistic maturity that you can arrive at that somehow would get you over it. Somehow you become bulletproof towards doubt. And so I, I think Christians throughout the history of the church have always appreciated this because it's, it resonates so deeply with what it takes to continue in the, in the Christian faith. But I also think that there's something else that should interest this and interest us in understanding this psalm it, because it goes past just shattering our delusions that we'll never have doubt or just making us comfortable with when we're in it because it actually explains it. When you really get into it, there's an explanation of what causes it, the cost that it takes, the toll it takes, if you will, inside of you, and then how to actually doubt your doubt in a positive way. It's all right here. And so I, I think it's true to say that, man, this is kind of refreshing that the, an actual writer of Scripture could admit that he almost walked away from his faith. But there's something in this that if that's all you take away, I think you're you're really missing a lot of the depth and the profundity of what we find here. Now, I want to start by showing the cause of his doubt, the cause of the psalmist's doubt. And we see it in verses 1 to 3, but before we get into this, I just want to point out that for most of us, our doubts don't just appear in a vacuum. It might seem like it, but they're almost always attached to some event or even some prolonged circumstance in our life that just flat out doesn't fit with what we believe to be true. It just, it actually contradicts it. And that gets us thinking. We're going to get into some contemporary research of, of just why it's so difficult when that happens. But a doubt just isn't like you sitting out on your patio one day thinking, I wonder if the Bible's true. What causes you to question the Bible is when you've believed it and something happens that it, that's actually not consistent with what you believe. Then you get thrown into this tumult, this turmoil. Well, it's the exact same way in verses 1 through 3 with the psalmist here because he, he explains to us the occurrence that precipitated the doubt that was going on in his mind. In verse 1, when he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, that's kind of an introductory statement but it, it expresses how the psalmist had believed that the character of God, particularly his goodness, the way it was manifested and extended to Israel was true. He believed that there was this kind of prevailing, he's almost casting a tone or a color 
in the landscape that he's going to describe. And he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, the phrase pure in heart, most commentators believe that it's speaking deeply to who he was, how he had lived his life up to this point. He was devout. He wasn't just a person that talked about Jesus occasionally and went to Christian concerts. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Delete that one. He wasn't nominal. He wasn't on the fringe. He was very, he was very devout. He was very serious. He, he literally could say that he was pure in heart. And so this is what is kind of building up to this. He, in verse 3, he says, But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. It describes an incredibly difficult internal conflict that nearly brought him to reject his faith to completely walk away from it altogether. That's how deep it is. And that's actually in verse, verse 2. In verse 3, it says, he, this is the most important part, by the way, too, is that he came to the point that he began to envy the wicked. Now, what I want to do is help you kind of tease this out a little bit. It wasn't just the prosperity of the wicked that was causing this conflict. It was his response to it that threw him into this tumult. In other words, he knew that God was good. He knew that God doesn't attend the efforts of the wicked. He knew all of that. But as he watched it, it made him jealous for those people. That's the part that bothered him. It wasn't just the fact that it was injustice was taking place. It wasn't just the fact that wicked people were, their businesses survived while good people's businesses were failing. It wasn't that at all. It was that that he stood in relation to it and he said, I've actually become jealous of those people. That's what bothered him the most. That's what threw him into this tumult. Now, I I don't think that you can actually overstate the significance of that because it's not what most of us would conclude. We'd just say, well, he's seeing what we all see. He's seeing injustice, and, and he can't reconcile it with a God who's good to Israel. That's not his problem. His problem is that he had moved so fast, so quick, that he actually became envious and jealous of those people. That's a completely different issue. And so the cause of his doubt is not just appearing in a vacuum. It's a very explicit circumstance that he explains in the economy of just a couple of verses. And he said, I came to the point that I was going to quit. I was going to leave. Now, the second part I want you to pay attention to is the cost of his doubt. Now, from verse 4 to verse 15, he goes through, and pretty, we don't have the time to go through all of that, but he goes through a fairly elaborate description of all that he had seen happen among the wicked and why he had actually said, boy, this doesn't work. And so he goes through this explicit instruction, but when he comes to verse 16, he, he's taking you into what it was doing to him. And I think this is really helpful. Now, I've talked with many of you over the years. I've talked to myself a lot over the years when I doubt and when you doubt. And for some reasons, we call doubt nagging for a reason. It it isn't just like a booger that you can flick off your finger. It mentally is like embedded. It's like entrenched. It's like rooted into our brains. And we kind of see that here in a single verse. He said... But when I thought how to understand this, the Hebrew that's expressed here is really interesting because it describes a very sincere, very devout and diligent effort to reconcile what was going on. How to relieve some of the conflict and go back to it, abate his jealousy. He's trying to figure that out. And the terms itself are talking about a season of intensity that are just remarkable. And he says, it seemed to me a wearisome task that expresses both his inability to resolve the internal conflict as well as his complete and utter exhaustion with the process. And he, he, can't, help, he can't fix it. The cost or the toll it was taking on him, as bad as it was when he first became aware of it, It got worse when he tried to unpack it, when he tried to figure it out. And he is saying, 
I was utterly exhausted trying to overcome this. Now, for those of you that have ever gone through seasons like this, I, 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 I know I can relate to that. I had a season of doubt that lasted probably about 10 years. And there were seasons where I, it was like a callus. I could kind of develop enough awareness and understanding of things that I could kind of keep it away from me, but not for long. It always nagged me. It was always there. And I can really relate to this cost of his doubt in verse 16. The third part that we see is the opening. And this is the doubting of his doubt. And so in verses 1 to 20, they give a very lucid explanation of the cause and the cost of his doubt, but the heart of the instruction is actually discovered in his explanation of how he finally resolved it, how he overcame his doubt in verses 21 to 28. Now, I, I think you can see very distinct, two distinctive elements in this. And this should resonate with all of you because we, we live in a time where we think we can multitask. We think that we can kind of be suspended between, kind of indifferently between different opinions. In other words, we kind of feel like we can sit on the fence. But we can't. There comes a time where you have to decide whether you're in or out. And so we see this movement where he pushes away from something in order to move into or embrace something else. And if you ever try to overcome doubt without those two steps, it would never be sustainable. You're faking yourself out intellectually. You have to move away from something in order to embrace something else. And that's what we see here in verses 21 and 22. It explains the awareness that the psalmist came to in regard to the true nature of his doubt. It was doing something to him that he had to understand. He said, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, in verse 21, it expresses his awareness around the initial origin of his doubt. He uses the term embittered that was actually a term in Hebrew that referred to vinegar. And if you've ever taken like a, even a capful of vinegar into your mouth, it has this way of just almost turning your whole body inside out. It's so bitter, it's so sour. And he uses this term to talk about it. But the interesting part about the way that he wrote the psalm is that he uses it reflexively. Now, the, the significance of that is that he, said, he realizes he was doing it to himself. That's the implication. This embitteredness was his own fault. It was something that reflexively, it was something that he was doing that was causing this turning inside out. Bitterness, sour. Now, when he shifts to use the term pricked in heart, it's really interesting as well because that term just meant to be like run through with a sharp sword. It meant just to sustain like a mortal wound. But you see, he's, he's creating kind of a chronology. He's talking about this bitterness that he had chosen and this thrusting of a sword that was the result of that. And so it's, it's kind of linear as he's unpacking this. And, then the, the, and it's really interesting because he used the term for heart that metaphorically in Hebrew it referred to the kidneys. Now, the, the kidneys weren't really your kidneys the way we think of them today. The kidneys were a metaphorical reference to your temperament and your personality. Now, that really kind of, with that context, you can understand what he actually said. He said, I was doing something to myself and it was, it was souring me towards these things that I had believed. And suddenly it was like getting run through with a sword in, in my very personality. It was ruining him as a human being. It was destroying his outlook in the whole entire world. This is an amazing, just it, the poetry and the way that it captures and paints this picture is is should cause you, should it enlist pity that you see a person who's actually laying on the floor ruined and understands that it's his own fault. He did it to himself. Now, in verse 22, he explains the result of the process. And again, it's so remarkably aware and lucid. He, the, the process that 
ends up reducing him to being brutish and ignorant, which describes the idea of mental faculties were likened to those of an animal. He says, this reduced me to a point of being irrational. And he, he captures it in that last phrase when he says, I was like a beast toward you. Now, please don't conjure into your mind. Every once in a while I say things, sorry. Every once in a while I say things and immediately, like I hate cats. And the moment I say that, everybody that has a cat feels like they have to send me an email to justify, along with some cute pictures, I'd have to admit. But I still hate cats. And so I don't want you to think that, well, there's some animals that aren't beastly. That's not his idea. He's talking about the kind of an animal that would want to tear you to pieces. The kind of animal that wants to just destroy you. And he's depicting his disposition towards God. He said, I was like that towards you. And he's explaining an irrationality that set in on him that caused him to be entirely incapable of thinking through what was happening, what was really going on. His description of the process is both dark and intense. And it ultimately rendered him incapable of reasoning through the internal conflict that he was entering. And it's strangely, it's strangely similar to the explanation of doubt that the British missionary Leslie Newbigin left to us before his death. Now, Newbigin, Newbigin served as a foreign missionary from England into India for 30 years. And after his retirement from the mission field, he came back to England, and he was shocked at how decimated the church of England had become while he was away for 30 years. And he engaged this really painful research and discovery about what actually had happened while he was gone. And among the many things that he discovered, one of them was the statement that he wrote about doubt. He said, when we undertake to doubt any statement, We do so on the basis of beliefs which, in the act of doubting, we do not doubt. Hang with this. This is is profound. I can only doubt the truth of a statement on the grounds of other things, usually a great many other things which I believe to be true. See, that's the pushing out, pushing in. So if you've ever come to a point that you can't quite believe believe what you formerly believed, it's because you're believing something different. You can't doubt Proposition A without a solid belief in Proposition B. Now, if all you get from the sermon today is that, it's going to be worth sitting still for 35 minutes. Promise. This will change your life. Whenever, those of you that are parents, whenever you get you know, teenagers that are saying, I'm not sure if I believe that, it's not disbelief in a vacuum. It's belief in something else that's causing that. So if you take what Newbigin said, in essence, your doubt about anything is based upon your belief in something else. Therefore, the true and the lasting consequence of denying your doubt and not working through them is that it will ultimately leave you suspended between two opinions. And that is going to bankrupt you of any courage or conviction that it takes to press through a situation. And finally, you have to admit that you're moving every single day closer and closer to complete unbelief, rejection of what you formerly believed. Now, let's look at the moving in part of it. The second aspect of the instruction pertains to what he intentionally moved into as opposed to what he moved away from. In verses 23 to 28, They described some very specific actions that the psalmist undertook in order to overcome his doubt. He starts in verse 23 with this statement, nevertheless. Well, that is a very emphatic statement in the Hebrew language that basically says, here's the other side of the coin. This is, everything I'm about to tell you is an entire juxtaposition to what I was doing before. And so this is like an about face, and this is how he explains it. He starts in verse 23, he says, I'm I'm continually with you, you hold my right hand, and that's an affirmation of God's 
present attendance with him and how tenderly the Lord actually had led him and comforted him in the past. Then he says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to your glory, depicts his confidence in the sufficiency of God's granting of wisdom, which, which when he was confused, it gave him light as opposed to darkness. And just simply the unchanging faithfulness that God had manifested in his life. And he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you is his declaration that, that there is really only one God. Now, for those of you that I just want to stop here just for a second. If you've ever gone through this, that's an interesting question. The first thing that I heard, we had this really, this is back in, in September of 19, August of 1989 when I first started at the Master Seminary. And I, I, it was actually my favorite professor, but it wasn't for about 10 years that I liked him. But he became my favorite over time. And he, I always think his wife bought his shirts like two sizes too small because he always looked like he was pulling his neck out of his shirt. But anyhow, he, he, he had a double PhD. He had graduated from Cambridge. He was part of a think tank up at UC Berkeley. This guy was brilliant. But he always said the two most important questions is, are there a God and has he spoken? Now, I, I wish in 1989 that I had any capacity to understand how profound those questions are because I've seen it over and over. If you came in to me tomorrow and said, you know, I grew up Christian, I've, you know, I was baptized, I did all these things, I've even been on a few mission trips where we went down and repainted a you know, church in Mexico that's been painted 50 times this last year. You know, <laughs> I'm serious. I, you know, I'm serious. I've been a Christian, serious Christian my whole entire life. It's like yada, 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 but I'm about done. And I'll always start, do you believe there's a God? Because right now, if you went into any restaurant or bar in Denver, you would split the crowd. Not Now, if you, did, if you went into Sterling, it's a different story. But in urban settings in the United States, about half the people that are going to be in that bar, they don't believe there's a God. Now, their, their worldview is pretty messed up because of that. But they don't believe. And so you have to start with the question, is there a God? Now, the second question, as he spoke, has he spoken, is just as important. Because now you have to admit that there's actually a way that you can know him. He has a way to communicate with us and us with him. Now, that's what he's getting at here when he talks about God leading him. Who do I have in heaven but you? He's saying there is no God but him. Amazing statement. Now, in verse 25, it says, or excuse me, verse 26, he said, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my of my heart and my portion. This is his, him just admitting that he's temporal. He's frail. He's not going to live forever. And he's saying, I know that I better hold on to something that is sustainable because it isn't me. And so he has to go outside of himself. Then he says, for behold, those who are far, far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's an affirmation of God's promise to punish those who reject him and to actually prosper those who embrace him. And finally, he said, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's an interesting statement because it's disclosing at the end of the process that he just planted his feet. No matter what happens in the process of the doubting, you have to decide what you believe. And that's the statement. He says, God's going to be the one I run to. He's my refuge. And so there's, there's like this renewal of his faith. There's this recommitment. And I, I, th I think some of you would do well to do this from time to time. To just say, sign me up again. Almost like some of you that have served in the military and for some reason that's always baffled the people around you, you re-enlisted. You signed up for another tour. And that tells you something. It could be stupidity, but almost it's never that. It tells you something about the commitment. And I sincerely mean it. I, I, I think occasionally we all ought to re-enlist. We ought to have this sense. Because if you don't, 
it always sounds, it comes out in counseling like this. Well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. You haven't. Well, I've, I've been a Christian since I was eight. Well, maybe. But when you're able to say, you know, my faith has gone through so many trials that I've come and gone. And I, I just know for now, this is what I believe. Amazing clarity in that last statement. The biblical scholar Mar Marcelo Toombs, he, he describes this transition that we just looked at as a journey from the dark night of doubt to the dawn of faith. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right, quickly, I want to move through a little bit of uh, contemporary research about doubt. This is going to, I think, impress you. Now, facing doubt shouldn't always cause us to anticipate some affirmation. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And it's not always going to you know, establish or affirm our former beliefs, as it oftentimes enables us to see past erroneous and misleading things that we believed, even about Christianity. Okay? Now, psychologist and research, uh, researcher David McRaney, he, he recently wrote about the necessity of working through our doubts as a means of overcoming our self-delusion. And he was the one that actually said self-delusion is as much a part of the human condition as fingers and toes. That's pretty common. And he came to this conclusion. He said, once something is added to your collection of beliefs, you protect it from harm. You do this instinctively and unconsciously when confronted with attitude, inconsistent information, just as confirmation bias shields you when you actively seek information, and the backfire effect defends you when the information seeks you. Stop right there. He's saying, okay, when you're trying to figure something out, you have a bias in the filter of your brain that when you go and seek the information, you're only finding the information you want to find. He said the backfire effect is when the information seeks you and something's going on. That's what he's explaining. He said the backfire effect defends you when the information seeks you, when it blindsides you. Coming or going. You stick to your beliefs instead of questioning them. When someone tries to correct you, tries to dilute your misconceptions, it backfires and strengthens those misconceptions instead. Over time, the backfire effect makes you less skeptical of those things that allow you to continue seeing your beliefs and attitudes as true and proper. So basically saying the backfire effect stalls our beliefs in some areas, as we allow ideas or beliefs that we've already... Now, stay with us. This is slippery. I, I got this wrong for most of last week, and I just kind of caught myself at the end of the week. It stalls your beliefs because it lets the stuff you already believe go through your head without hardly even considering it. And then it gets very obsessive about all the stuff that you don't believe. Now, you might say, that seems like a good thing. It seems like that would kind of calcify Christians in kind of a place that they can be stalwart. They can just kind of deflect some of the nonsense that's going on around them. But it has exactly the opposite effect. And this is why some of you think that you're up against more resistance than you've ever known in your entire life. This is the reason, this psychology, this discovery of this backfire effect, because you're now hypersensitive to what's against you, and you're now suspended without looking at what you really believe, you're suspended with this bombardment of all the ideas that are inconsistent with you. And it, without thinking about what you believe, it's pushing you. Every time one of those torpedo, torpedoes hits the hull of your ship, it bumps you more towards unbelief and you don't even know it. And so you become ridiculous and offensive because you're not thinking more deeply about your own thoughts, you're thinking, obsessively about the thoughts that are contrary to yours, and now you're just getting emotional and defensive. And your explanations of your faith sounds stupid, to be honest with you. They wouldn't convince a child, but that's what you believe. So I think that this is amazing if you really can grasp what they're saying now. Now, McRaney gives this really helpful example to better understand how the backfire effects works in our everyday life, and hopefully this kind of pull this together for you. 
Have you ever noticed the, the peculiar tendency that you have to let praises pass through you, but to feel crushed by criticism? A thousand, positives, <clears throat> a thousand positive remarks can slip by unnoticed, but one you suck can linger in your head for days. One hypothesis as to why this is and the backfire effect happen is that you spend much more time considering information you disagree with than you do information you accept. Information that lines up with what you already believe passes through the mind like a vapor. But when you come across something that threatens your beliefs, something that conflicts with your preconceived notions of how the world works, you seize up and you take notice. See what's going on? Entirely different than probably most of what most of you have thought. What McRaney is really getting at is far more than your ability to understand why you let praises pass through your mind and you go into a sick, dark funk when somebody criticizes you. Far more than that. He's essentially explaining the reason that we incessantly face doubts in regard to our beliefs because we get like hyper-tuned in to what we don't believe to the statements that people say that challenge and contradict everything that we stand for. And in the meantime, we're not spending any time allowing those things to drive us deeper into better understanding what we do believe. And so it tips. The whole system tips. Now, I personally don't believe that there is another song that could be more helpful to those of you who profess to be Christians because we find here a very reasonable, clear articulation of what causes doubt, the cost of doubt, and a credible strategy to work through them. In a historical moment when our culture is rapidly, and I mean this, oftentimes justifiably moving away from Christianity, we have to admit that sometimes the stuff that we explain as Christianity isn't Christianity. It's that stupid stuff away stuff that we hold because we're not paying attention to whether we can give credible, compelling explanations of what we believe. And so the world around us is just saying, that is just mystical nonsense. It's like, how dare you talk about Jesus like that? How dare you criticize? I've had people criticize me because I hate K-Love Radio. And it's like, that's some, yeah, come on, do I, there should be an amen out there for that. <laughs> but the problem is, is that, you see, those are the sacred cows. We shouldn't give a damn about K-Love Radio. What we should care about is understanding, justification, sanctification, what God did in our atonement, how the Holy Spirit works in us, but we get emotionally obsessed about a radio station. That's not right. And it's turning us into these weirdos that the culture is legitimately marginaling, marginal, putting on the sideline. <laughs> They're benching us. We've turned into Trevor Simeon. Now, if that doesn't cut deep, I don't, I don't think I can. I'm just sorry. But now, here's my point. Let me, let me dry in for two more minutes. Um, Tim Keller has said a, a lot of amazing things. He, he personally is one of my heroes, okay? But of the many, many things that he said to Christians, I think what I'm about to share with you is probably the most significant. Just my opinion, it's not widely held, but everybody else is wrong. <laughs> now, he, in, in the introduction to his book, The Reason for God, he, he describes that during his college years, he discovered three barriers that were preventing him from overcoming what he called unreality. That's where some of you are living. You're living in unreality. You're in denial of children that don't believe what you believe. You're in denial of what constitutes good government, bad government, because you're not pushing into a Christian worldview to understand how God speaks to our world. You're just holding on to Jesus loves me, this I know. And Keller didn't believe that. And he found himself in this crisis in his college years. Now, from that, he, he said that that unreality was actually causing this, it had this toxic erosion 
eroding effect on his faith, and it was keeping his faith from becoming vital. Life affecting is what he said. Now, he comes to this point that he makes this declaration, and again, in the introduction to the reason for, her, reason for God, that's all, in the introduction, he said, a second, he calls it a second look at doubt. This is what he said. He said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe they, as they do will find themselves defenseless against the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight. If she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself that are plausible rather than ridiculous and offensive. And just as important for our current situation, these days that we live in right now is what he means, such a process will lead you, even after you have come to a position of strong faith, to respect and to understand those who doubt. I wish I could say it that well. Go back to your question, is doubt good or bad? It's very, very good, and it's very, very necessary, but it is not, I repeat, it is not pleasant. Hopefully that's helpful. Let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. <clears throat> Do you believe that the psalmist statements in verses 23 through 28 are statements to develop belief or statements similar to a mission statement or goal where he or she is choosing to believe, even though he still is battling with those questions of doubt. No, I think hopefully the way I showed the structure of that, this isn't, this isn't him just, this brings up a really interesting point before I finish the answer. When I went into the first serious funk in regard to my faith, one of my best friends was Tom Elliff. He became the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. We were tight. We'd gone to Korea together. We had gone to Tanzania together. My folks had, they, they did this magnificent job to redoing, I mean, finishing his basement. It was, it was incredible. But when I went to him, I said, Tom, I don't know if I can continue. And he, boasted, he basically told me, he said, you don't have enough faith. I said, now, wait a minute. It sounds like you're telling me to have more faith in my faith. He said, well, that's essentially true. I said, wait a minute. I confess to you that my faith is not functioning properly. And now you just tell me to have more faith in my faith. That, that seems like this in this question. Because he's not doing that. He's not hoping in his hope. He's punching through some things. And the awareness of what he moved away from proves to you that he wasn't just continuing with air, all the same equipment in his backpack. He was willing to jettison some things so that he could return to some semblance of sanity to think through it. And so he's not just reiterating the party line. He is admitting, I became an enemy of you. That's the depth of what he meant. He said, I was a beast towards you. And he's pushing away from that, and he is taking several steps to revitalize his faith. So, next question. How does the backfire effect relate to our relationships? Opinions of others, groups, spouses, family, and church? Great, great question. It makes things worse. Those of you that are Republicans usually can't even put together the, the letters C, N, N. And those of you that are uh, Democrats can't hardly say F-O-X, except when the World Series is on. And that's because we've come to despise people who don't think like we do. That's what's wrong with the, what's the right side? Come on, the political right side that does all the, what's that? The alt-right or the Antifa. They're the exact same thing. There are people internally that quit thinking 
about other people that don't think like them, and they villainize them. The research that's coming out on college campuses about what like freshmen in college think is appropriate response to people that disagree with them is, is, should cause you to be bald like me. It does. It should cause you to pull your hair out. We, our country is rapidly moving towards a season that we do not believe in the First Amendment because we can't tolerate contemplating the views of other people. And so it makes us hypersensitive. It feels like everybody's assaulting us. Everything's a cri uh, criticism. Everything is amplified. It's, nothing can be on a scale of 1 to 10, like in the 2 or 3 range. Everything is an 8 or 9 that justifies you saying whatever and doing whatever to prove your point. So yeah, this, this is a big problem with relationships. In a marriage, the moment that you tip in a marriage to start finding fault with your spouse, guess what? You're going to find a lot but it was there when you were dating. It was there all the time. But you were charitable when you were dating. You thought her perfume smelled good when you were dating. You couldn't wait to spend time with her and hear her thoughts when you were dating. But since then, she's hurt you once or twice. You've tried to explain why the pain is so great. And your response was to find fault. And now you find it every day, day after day after day. And until you have the integrity to repent and confess of that, you are on the road to divorce. And it's only going to be a short season before all your friends and family hear all your data that's on one side. And you will hate, literally hate that person and wonder how you got there. It's a big deal. All right, last, last question. Wow, I was hoping it was no further questions. So how can we build this into our testimony, our witness to others? All right, last week I said something at the close of the service about a song, and I think some of you kind of were like, woo. I want you to see how helpful that should have been. For us to work together, we don't have to be lockstep in everything. Are there vital aspects of unity? Without question. But I think something like that tends to pop your little idea bubble about unity. Because those of you that have good marriages, you know that the only reason that they've survived is that you fought for them. Because there was disagreement and disunity that emerged and manifested itself. And when you see situations where people get along when they disagree with one another, it inspires us to fight more. It causes us to just to hate the coward. That the moment that he finds something inconsistent, he turns and runs. Nothing is going to be, that's any good, that is going to last a day, happens that way. Not even once. And even if you get an animal, you sooner or later are going to have to pick up inconsiderate. Golly, I want to say something, but I can't say it. There's, they're, they're going to do things on your carpet that shouldn't be done, but you can forge it into your understanding. Oh, there's going to come a time not too far from now that it's not going to happen any longer. Maybe. But you see, my point is simply this. If you can walk a block, holding the hand of another human being. It's because you're refusing to stray. Not because you take every step the same. It's because you've chosen to stay alongside. That, my friend, is what makes good relationships. That's what creates strong churches. Not because we're all so insecure. See, the insecurity towards the division pushes us towards those extremes. The courage and the willingness to think with precision is the only way that this lasts. It really is. And so the way that we build our testimony is admitting we have doubts. Admitting that, dude, I, I've told you guys this. If, if somehow they, neuroscience gets to a point that they could put a glass plate on your head so you could see our thoughts, I would wear a hat all the time. 
my thoughts are not as honorable as you probably think they are because I have to fight for my faith. I have to take thoughts captive all the time, just like you. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. I know for some of you, you don't want to think that because it knocks me off some sort of a pedestal. I never was on a pedestal. I put my pants on one leg at a time. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to go through a narrow gate, you're going to walk on a narrow way, and you're going to deny yourself and take up a cross and follow, just like me. Or one day, you're going to walk away because he doesn't do what you want. All right, great questions. Okay, let's go ahead and finish. Sorry, Randy, that was a little long. Okay, let's pray and... uh, Zach is going to come up and do the music in our worship. Father, we would ask that these would be a few moments where we actually could go in and have the nerve of our arm to admit who we are and who, we're, who we aren't. There is not a single man, woman, child, rich person, poor person, educated person, simple-minded person, strong person, weak person. There's not a single one of us in this room. There's no of those online or that listen to this podcast that doesn't have to admit, my faith isn't strong enough to just navigate everything without doubt. Mine is not. And so when I read Psalm 73, it's like, wow, that's so real. But it's so helpful because he's not just saying, sign me up again and repeating the, the vision statement. He's doing business with who he really is. And I I pray that we'd be able to think about that for a few moments. As we take communion, I pray that it would be a testimony to those around us that we believe in Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood. That's what those symbols mean. Meet us here, we pray. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.